Welcome to the Blue Side Podcast, brought to you by Cambridge University Science Magazine. I'm Ruby. And I'm Simone. Every two weeks, we speak to local researchers, university staff and students, and anyone who works in science to learn about their research and activities, hear about the work that they do, and uncover what goes on behind the scenes. If you want to get in touch with a question, suggestion, or just want to be featured on the podcast, just drop us a tweet. Um, our handle is at BlueSidePod. And you can also email us at BlueSidePodcast at gmail.com. This week we're talking to two PhD students, Nick Taylor from the Department of Plant Sciences and Daniel Muthukrishna from the Institute of Astronomy. Together with Dr. Carrie-Anne Webb, who's a postdoc in the Theoretical and Computational Epidemiology Group in the Plant Sciences Department, they developed an online educational tool called the Low High COVID Web App, so that anyone that is interested in learning more about infectious disease modeling, kind of some of the scientific concepts behind you know, the, the news that you might be reading about the coronavirus. On their website, they have a data feed, which changes in real time, where you can see the data uh, regarding coronavirus spread in different countries. You can compare different countries. They also have a bunch of educational videos on all these concepts, like the R values and, and how modeling works. And they also have a space where you can kind of make a fictional country, decide what your population is, um, what the infection rate is, and then apply different measures like social distancing or complete lockdowns and then see how the spread of the virus changes. So it's an interactive way to learn more about how the coronavirus and and generally any infectious disease can spread in in society and then kind of understanding how the government policies behind that might be working. And and it's really a really great resource for anyone. Um, You don't have to be a scientist to understand it. So you can go onto their website by uh, clicking the link in the description. And the reason we invited them onto the podcast was to hear a bit about how they came up with the idea of making this educational tool. So they're not, you know, experts in the subject themselves, but how they came together as students who wanted to learn more about this subject. And to hear about their perspectives and how we can use these types of communication tools to communicate science in a more effective way, especially when we are living through a situation where a lot of people that are perhaps not that familiar with these concepts now want to understand them a bit better. The Blue Side Podcast is sponsored by Griner Bio One, who supply laboratory, diagnostic, and medical products to research institutions, higher education, the NHS, and others across the UK. For details of their full product range, visit www.gbo.com. Welcome, Nick and Dan. Uh, this is our first episode recording with two interviews at once. Um, so thanks for joining us and hopefully we can all coordinate around this. So you've been involved in developing this low high COVID app and we were wondering whether you could just sort of briefly give us an overview of what it's all about. Uh, yeah, so the app was kind of designed just as a, a project that me and Dan kind of sketched up in sort of Claire Bar one evening. Um, but basically the idea is, is to try and communicate some of the scientific uh, modelling that's gone on, the kind of the principles behind what drove the decisions that were made uh, back in March to, to start a lockdown in the UK, uh, and also just to kind of further explore how the, we thought the epidemic might progress. Um, and then Dan sort of came in and added a, a data aspect, um, and that was to sort of allow you to compare different uh, different countries and how they approached tackling the pandemic. At the start in like March, uh, when we were making this, the UK kind of switched its tune from 
a kind of hands-off or at least a, a relatively hands-off approach from this herd immunity approach to uh, something that changed into um, a lockdown approach. And so we wanted to explore what these different approaches, how, how much of an impact they really make. Uh, and Nick had ex used these things called SIR models uh, before and done a lot of that stuff uh, in his epidemiology work. And so he had a lot of experience there and it's not, I guess, not too much of a stretch to go from plants to humans. Uh, yeah, so I'm based in plant sciences uh, modeling plant epidemics but the sorts of models that apply to uh, to human epidemics are very similar at least the, the more basic ones um, so I I sort of adapted some of those to work for uh, the coronavirus pandemic and then using quite a few of the the parameter values from the imperial paper that was published uh, and was that was sort of informing a lot of the government policy and in March or so. So it was using what are called compartmental models. So you sort of split the population up uh, according to disease status. So sort of partitioning into people who are healthy or infected or, uh, and, and I guess you have different levels of infection. So depending on the severity of the infection, you can progress to being hospitalized um, or you can recover. And then if you're hospitalized, then you can progress to being in a critical state and then either recovering or dying from that. Was the kind of motivation behind making the app? Because you said it was kind of like a kind of spontaneous idea that you had together. Because that was going to be one of our questions. Like, how did you, obviously, you were both based in different departments. So how did you come together to make this um, specific, you know, project? But I guess Yeah. Kind of uh, so Dan and I were uh, uh, friends from, from college, so via Claire College. Yeah, I guess part of it was just an interest in how everything was going to progress. So we had a personal interest in how the epidemic was likely to affect us and our friends. And that developed into putting more and more time into this project to try and understand the pandemic to greater levels of detail. And then uh, one of the postdocs from my lab in plant sciences, uh, Dr. Kerry-Ann Webb, thought it'd be great to push this as a sort of more educational platform approach. So. Uh, once we developed this model to actually sort of get it online and try and push it uh, as an educational tool. Yeah. So I think, I think um, it was about like in March when the university kind of closed down, the, the country kind of closed down in some sense, and that was all that anyone could really think about was coronavirus. And so uh, for, for us, it was kind of... Um, you know, it's kind of difficult to work on our own on our own studies with so much going on in the world. And so uh, instead of just thinking about it, now I know that I would like every day I'd look at the numbers, uh, how many, you know, how many, how many new deaths, how many new cases have happened today. Uh, and so that, you know, every day I'd be looking at Worldometer to see what, what was changing. Uh, uh, for me, that inspired me to like, you know, well, I wanted to be able to compare countries. Because like, one thing that became clear was that, um, you know, in March, you know, at the start of March, the UK had zero deaths right and then by the end of march we had over 2000 and by the end of april we had 20,000. so what became clear was that we didn't really understand uh exponential growth very well and we, it was quite you know it's quite difficult for our people to get their heads around this and so you know in march we talked about how bad italy was for example uh as this you know this place of like what is going on there this uh, the coronavirus is really hitting there badly um and what became more clear was that it you know this isn't a problem that's specific to italy it's just that italy got there first and within two weeks, we would be there as well. Um, and so I wanted to be able to see this. I just wanted to be able to like, you know, can I, can we create it? So there are th three kind of 
parts to this app. There's uh, the modeling part of it, There's uh, uh, which Nick really worked on uh, quite well there. And then uh, there's a data part of it where we can kind of just analyze different countries and compare what's going on, uh, which I worked on quite a lot. And there's the background knowledge, which uh, Sierra worked on quite a lot. Um, and so with the data part of it, I wanted to be able to see, um, you know, can we actually model exponentials onto these and actually see, well, how far behind are we each other, each country? For me, it was actually, it started off just being something I wanted to look at and just all, for me and Nick, just we kind of wanted to understand this a little bit more. And then we became, it became a little bit more of like a public service, you know, I think this could help a lot of people to try and understand the coronavirus a little better, what kind of government measures are going on. Um, and you know how the data is changing with time and so we made this into a nice user-friendly app and thought that this uh, might be actually useful to a lot of people yeah have you had a kind of response from have people gotten in touch with you or do you know if it's being used as an educational tool maybe in like classrooms or yeah i mean i think one thing we could track is like the kinds of people using it where they're using it that's being used in places you wouldn't really expect so around south america obviously a lot in england and just like in peru and brazil and all these other countries which somehow found the app as well and so it is being used quite widely not quite sure for what purposes but i do know that a lot of people had um uh you know as we released the app a lot of feature requests like can you add this can you add this country like you know i have a few uh friends around the world and they're like oh, can you add our country to this as well can we compare this and uh, people were very interested um, you know the, the coronavirus had really hit a few countries quite badly but other countries are starting to get there and so they wanted to kind of see where they were on this scale um, and so they asked about that I know that um, one of my super uh, one of my collaborators in the US uh, used it in his uh, uh, time series analysis class as an example of uh, you know how to model these kind of uh, how we can model these time series data just as an example of what's going on sounds like it's massively successful then and it must feel awesome to see uh, people all over the world using it um, and I think what really struck me when I was having a play with it as well I kind of realized that these kind of apps aren't sort of that common or that easily available and and was that kind of a motivation as well a sort of condensed source of this information because it there's so many numbers flying around and it's it's very simple it's very user-friendly and it's very sort of graphical which i think even if you're not scientifically minded you can engage with um was was that a motivation behind it as well or did it sort of evolve into that yeah it kind of snowballed a bit um so i i sort of got interested in in this modeling um probably mid-march or so um kind of feeling like i'm doing a phd in mathematical epidemiology but at the moment all my projects are focused on plants but it felt a bit strange to ignore the sort of biggest pandemic to to hit humans for sort of 100 years um so that's when i i thought actually um i want to get into modeling some of this and my supervisor was really supportive of that um, and that allowed me to spend some of that time um, building up this app. And then as I saw sort of more of these models being published and, and a few of these sort of web interfaces coming out online, I saw a lot of them interfaces where you've got so many parameters being thrown at you. And to me, I felt the only people that would understand that were other disease modelers who could probably and probably had already written their own models. So I felt that I wanted to try and create something. I guess it's difficult to know what level to pitch it at, but I was trying to make something that was, was hopefully slightly more accessible. And I think each update to the app, I've tried to make it more, uh, more accessible and intuitive where I can. But um, again, before I'd done this, I hadn't done much 
um, sort of web programming. So that's been another kind of thing to explore, I guess. I think it's, you know, it's not the perfect polished product yet, but it's, uh, it's been a really interesting kind of project for me. And I, I'm sure Dan would say the same. Sorry. Uh, I think um, having, uh, uh, well, making it user friendly was quite important, but uh, putting this onto, I mean, I, I, we started off just making this for ourselves and kind of on or just on, you know, a Python back, back end and just doing it. And we thought, you know, and so we kind of built each part of it independently on this on an app and then put them together. Um, and I think, you know, uh, it's a really good way to just let average people try and play with like in an interactive way, because, you know, uh, in, you know, the, the real analysis that showed what was going on was this, uh, this paper that came out of Imperial, Co uh, Imperial College about, you know, what the government should be doing. And that was very intractable for most people to really understand. Um, and so putting this into a model where people can actually play with parameters and play with, you know, what country they want to analyze and they play with, um, uh, what the starting population is, what kind of what rate of susceptibility is, what the death rate is, uh, and actually put those numbers in themselves and just play with what what kind of scenarios happen. You know, what what scenarios happen when you lock down the population versus social distancing the population. Um, we're also really curious about you know we call it low high because uh, uh, what became clear was that you know this this virus is obviously very very deadly, but uh, it was uh, hitting uh, high risk people, so people with um, uh, pre existing conditions a lot more significantly uh, than it was people uh, with uh, conditions that weren't as serious. And so back when, you know, the word herd immunity was being thrown around quite a lot, uh, it became clear that, you know, this would only really work if the people who were getting sick were low risk. And so we wanted to consider, well, you could lock down everyone, but what would happen if you just locked down a, a high risk set of the population versus the low risk set of the population? Um, and we, 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 we let you play with the app. You can actually play with uh, what happens when you do each of those scenarios. Um, and I thought getting that information out to the public and letting the public actually play with these and see what's going on, uh, I think Nick and I both thought that was a pretty important thing to do. Yeah, and I guess it's the kind of thing where you, you know, when you want to understand what's going on at the moment and you realize that there isn't really a way to do that in the way that you want, you end up doing it yourself and then automatically, you know, that helps all the people that have the same question as you. Um, I guess, do you think that, you know, speaking more broadly, that's something that we str not struggle with, but could do better as a, as a society to, you know, that we don't have that kind of scientific literacy in our day to day of, of knowing about, you know, how these government policies suddenly use this paper and then something goes through and we have no idea, you know, how that works. Or do you think that more could be done from, you know, a scientist perspective to kind of talk about these things more and, and do more to, you know, talk to members of the public in general about how these concepts like play about in our day-to-day -day lives because obviously now we know how the coronavirus affects us you know quite a lot because everyone's thinking about it um but there's probably a lot of other aspects to our lives that we don't you know know about in that sense that we could all benefit from i don't know what are your thoughts on that <laughs> yeah definitely i think uh that public engagement uh aspect is a really important one and i think it's one that is sometimes overlooked um just communicating this you know this great work that that is done um by researchers you know within the university but across the country uh and that doesn't always if it does reach the public sometimes it's through a, a headline and a headline is sort of lifted from a you know from one sentence within a paper that isn't necessarily representative of the science so yeah i think trying to facilitate that that conversation between you know, research and and the public is a is a really interesting one. 
Okay. Well, I think uh, we as scientists have a duty to, um, you know, we are, we're experts at understanding data, uh, a lot of us. And so uh, the average person might struggle to actually interpret what's going on because they haven't dealt with them on a daily basis. And so I think we have a duty to be able to uh, present that in explainable ways to the community. Um, and so I think this is a real opportunity to do that. Uh, I think it's been really interesting actually throughout the pandemic how how important in this case it is to communicate pretty technical scientific detail to the public and you know you you see some people you know on the news who do that really effectively and you see a lot of people that maybe don't do it so effectively and it's not an easy easy thing to do but I think that's been really interesting for me just to see, uh, you know, which approaches are, are kind of capturing people's interest and really conveying that message and which ones are failing. Yeah. I mean, um, you know, we, to, 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 to for anyone to believe that, the, that this is going to be a huge pandemic uh, when you only have, you know, less than 10 deaths in the, in the UK, that's pretty hard to believe, you know, but the models, if the models say that's what it is, scientists need to be able to explain that to people. Um, and, and I think, I think, I think it's very difficult for people to uh, really accept that, you know, when the numbers are so low that they're suddenly going to change. Uh, and this is true for this coronavirus and all exponential growth, you know, including climate change and all sorts of other issues. Yeah. And that, that's been a really interesting one is that the, the numbers that are quoted are very often the deaths because that's the, you know, the key, um, impact that this virus has had but that's not a particularly useful metric in terms of predicting how it's going to progress in the future because the death figures are it kind of takes you know approximately four weeks or a month from getting the infection to progressing to um, to a serious infection and then dying and that means that the death figures relate to stuff that happened a month ago. So it's not a very good predictor of, of how we're we dealing with the virus right now. And so that's why even after lockdown happening sort of mid to late March, we had you know, a huge peak in terms of infections. And then slightly after that, we had a peak in deaths. Uh, and April was, was where we were hit really hard in terms of, of death figures. Yeah, I think one thing that's interesting is um, that, you know, the public really got behind this message that, you know, it was quite obvious what was going on. Uh, and it became more and more obvious with time that, you know, this is this is happening. This is what's changing. Uh, and it, that's partially because of, you know, good scientific communication that was happening in some parts. Um, but also partially because it was, you know, this this kind of exponential growth is happening on a daily timescale. You can kind of see. But, you know, when you've got other issues where exponential growth is happening on a yearly timescale, people... Uh, are less likely to believe that. And so it really takes scientists to come out there and uh, try and really get this message across rather than just telling people, try and get them to understand it. And these kind of apps can really help people play with the models and actually see, well, what is going on? Because, you know, in, in other issues in the world, um, you know, we were expected to believe these things, the average person. And that's, that's not difficult. That's not easy to do if you don't really understand the science. Uh, and I think these interactive apps really allow people to try and understand the science a little better. So if we can do these with uh, other global problems, such as climate change and other things, I think that's, uh, that's really great as well. And it's a good way to get the message out there in ways that people can understand. Because believing scientists isn't enough. I mean, it, it's, it's becoming harder and harder to do. Uh, but if you have the model there that you, you as a layperson or you as a non-expert can use, I think that's really great. 
Yeah, and we, we tried to, to keep uh, a documentation of how the model works. And at times that gets quite technical. Um, but it is interesting to try and list those assumptions that you're making because no model is going to be perfect. Um, and I think you have to be very transparent about what assumptions are you feeding into a model. Um, and one of the things that I think has sometimes failed to be communicated is, is the level of uncertainty in, in these things. So with something like exponential growth, where the number of cases can skyrocket, I remember seeing uh, a paper that had, it had confidence intervals for the number of infections. It was a sort of projection for the number of infections in a month's time. And it said there are going to be 20,000 infections, but the lower bound was something like four or 500. And the upper bound was, you know, maybe, uh, you know, 10 times as many. And so for some of these things, the exact time that these processes will happen is difficult to predict. Um, but as long as you're kind of clear about the range of values that are feasible, I think that's another really important thing to communicate is that, um, that these models are imperfect, but that doesn't make them not useful. It just means that you need to kind of understand that there is going to be some kind of confidence interval around whatever prediction you get. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's the curse of being a scientist in a way, because we're sort of trained never to say that our results are or whatever we're showing is 100% true. And I think sometimes people who aren't into science as much take that as doubt. And especially with science communication, I find that it is kind of almost like a big hurdle to get over to try and get people to understand that, you know, you're 95% sure, <laughs> but you can't ever be totally sure. But yeah, back back to, uh, you know, you were sort of talking about how apps like this in the future could potentially be applied um, to other situations, other sort of outbreaks, uh, climate change and things like that. Um, is that something you'd both be planning for? Or if not, is, is there other sort of some examples that you, you can really think of that you would love to make an app for? I know you mentioned climate change, but is there anything else? I mean, uh... Our expertise is actually, you know, we're not virologists, we're not uh, experts in this, we, we can look at data. Um, so, I mean, you know, I'm an astrophysicist, so I, I, it's, not, it's not something I directly use, but I think uh, if we can try and understand the models, which we could do, like, you know, we both read the, uh, the papers that were going out, and uh, Nick actually works on this stuff on a daily basis. Um, you know, if we can try and understand something and, and convey that better, I think that's great. Um, I don't know whether Nick has any more plans, but, you know, when something else, I think the, the real motivation here was that, you know, this was all we could really think about for such a uh, massive part of our lives. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's why I, I found the whole process quite rewarding because I think these are quite, quite cool projects to work on. Um, so it's, it's certainly something that I'll use in my research. So there'll probably be similar things at some point for plant epidemics. Um, but potentially other things um, as well. I think it's quite interesting to, I think a lot of modeling, a lot of the, like the interest around the model is actually just playing with it and getting a sense of what does it, uh, what sort of predictions does it generate? Uh, how does it work? Which parameters are important? Um, and a lot of that can get lost in a paper where you just publish a few plots that have come out of that model. 
and you don't necessarily have a feel for uh, exactly how it works, um, what are the important factors. I, I think it's a lot easier to engage with that if you can really see it and play with it. Um, so that was the kind of interactive, uh, the, the, the sort of motivation for the interactive element. Definitely. You said that um, in terms of working with each other, obviously you both come from very different backgrounds. Nick, you were working with this kind of modeling more on day-to-day -day basis. Dan, you had the more like data side or the data, like the big data processing aspect of it. Did you find that working together, although like you said, you worked independently in the beginning, does that, did you, were you able to like learn from each other and learn about the kind of things that you both work on from this collaboration? And also from the third person that worked on the kind of videos and explaining those concepts, was that kind of a way to, have you noticed that those skills have improved for you? Yeah, I, I found it uh, really useful actually. So Dan's a final year PhD student. Um, so I found it useful sort of collaborating with him on some of the code because his coding is a lot neater than mine can be. Um, so, and he had more experience of building these apps. So he'd, he'd made one before and um, this was the first major one that I'd put together. Um, and then Carrie ann from my lab does a lot of teaching at the university. And so she, she was really helpful in putting together the sort of educational aspects and trying to communicate that message um, slightly more clearly than I, than I think it would have been, um, would have been initially. So, yeah, I think that collaboration was, uh, I, I really enjoyed it, definitely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, my, my background is in software engineering, where I do a lot of the stuff before before I uh, became an astrophysicist, and so that that was useful for me. But I had never really done any uh, these of these SIR models or anything like that. So I definitely learned a lot from Nick about uh, how to actually do these models. You know, what the the standard um, differential equations you need to plug in are, uh, and so that was uh, that was nice. So it was definitely a good learning experience from these very different fields. So you're both PhD students. Um... And, and you both work in different areas. So, so could you tell us just, just quickly, kind of what what do you work on in your sort of day job, as it were? We're not talking about coronavirus. Yeah. So what do you do? <laughs> uh, Dan, do you want to go first? Yeah. So, uh, so I am a PhD at the Institute of Astronomy. Uh, so I, I mainly work on uh, machine learning and artificial intelligence applied to big data problems in ast in astrophysics, uh, and so I deal with these particular missions, these things called supernova, which are these exploding stars at the ends of their lives. And I try to understand them a little bit more. Uh, these are time, so basically, you know, there's, these are time series events where you get nothing and then all of a sudden uh, you get a massive brightness in the sky uh, in, through a telescope where uh, a star explodes. And from this change in brightness, we can understand these objects a little bit better. And so that's where my research is. I'm trying to understand these objects better, trying to model them, try to classify them using machine learning. Um, yeah. So it's very different to this, but you know, it's uh, it's still it's still time series data in some sense. <laughs> yeah, and my my PhD work is in uh, in plant epidemiology. So the problem I'm working on at the moment is to do with um, how pathogens evolve resistance to to the sorts of control measures that we have. So um, for diseases of wheat that I've been working on, so the main one is called Septoria. And that's the major disease of, of sort of winter wheat that's grown in the UK and grown in Europe. Uh, and the control measures that we have are using sort of disease resistant crop varieties. 
and using chemicals, so fungicides, um, to try and control the pathogen. But if you keep deploying the same methods of control, then the pathogen involves resistance. So I'm trying to use these compartmental models where you have, uh, you're trying to track the uh, infection and how it progresses through a growing season. Uh, and within these models, you kind of have competition between the different strains of pathogen. And you're trying to minimize this selection pressure that's leading to eventually a pathogen strain that you just can't control very effectively. Uh, so that's, that's what my sort of day-to-day -day PhD work is. It's so interesting that like there's different backgrounds um, and obviously your day-to-day -day works, you know, thinking about different questions, but actually, you know, in terms of the skills that you can apply, you can apply them to so many different ones. And it just shows how, you know, in, like that kind of interdisciplinary perspective is so important and can be so helpful to understanding these kinds of issues. And hopefully that's something that people will reflect on during this time and going forward will be something that people are more likely to, to do as well. Um, yeah, I, I was just going to say, I think a lot of um, science, at least at PhD level, is quite individual and i think there's probably a lot to be said for slightly more collaborative efforts or at least trying to trying to learn from other people's skill sets and approaches to to the same problem um i found that really valuable yeah i i think that's completely right i think sometimes there's a tendency for phd students to be, feel a bit isolated you're in your own little bubble um but I guess it just shows that you can you can come together and get projects that are really multidisciplinary and you know you never think of astrophysics and plant disease coming together for COVID it's just awesome it's really really cool um so yeah thank you so much for chatting to us today um and I'm sure all of our listeners uh, would be really keen to try out your app yeah, a little spike in your yeah <laughs> hopefully um but yeah thank you yeah thanks so much for having us. We really hoped you enjoyed this episode, chatting to Nick and Dan about the app that they developed with Dr. Kerry-Ann Webb about uh, coronavirus and modelling coronavirus. Um, it's called Low High Covid. I'd highly recommend checking it out. It's really, really interesting. You can play with all sorts of parameters and control measures and it really, really helps um, you understand Covid a little bit better. Um, as well as getting more comfortable with modelling and what, what modelling actually is. I found it super helpful. And yeah, if you enjoyed this episode, uh, please like and subscribe. Um, you can contact us uh, at BlueSidePod on Twitter, where you can also email us at podcast at So bye for now and see you next time.